Welcome to This Must Be The Place, the show that reveals the unique physical, cultural, and emotional layers of places. Tiffany Bennett joins us today. Tiffany, along with her business partner Jack, are proprietors of Never Told Casket Company, a shop in Seattle offering a selection of carefully collected antiques, artifacts, oddities that not only fall under the category of curiosities, some are also haunted. The objects in the shop are not gaudy or ticky tacky, these are objects that have been curated to instill awe, fear, or comfort. And it should be noted, Never Told also sells handmade caskets crafted by Jack Bennett. Tiffany, thank you so much for joining us today and talking about Never Told Casket Company. And I think、um, the nature of this program is to talk about unique places, but hopefully, what we're going to do also is think about your philosophy of why you created this place and this space and how it influences who you are or how who you are influences the place itself. So, thank you for joining. Yeah, thank you for having me. The first question I want to explore is could you share a bit of the history behind Never Told Casket Company, how it came to be, a little bit how it's evolved over time, and how is it received by folks? Yeah,、uh, Never Told started、uh, a few years ago.、Uh, my partner and I had been、uh, collecting and dealing antiques for about 20 years.、Uh, we started in Los Angeles、uh, going to estate sales, and、uh, we had a booth at an antique mall. And then we ran an art gallery for a while, and we often have combined the two、uh, things, having a gallery slash antique、uh, store.、Um, and then we moved to Seattle a few years later, and we have been selling antiques here and there. And then we found a really beautiful space and decided、um, to combine Jack's, he's a third generation casket maker.、Uh, we decided to combine his skill with selling antiques and oddities. And、uh, it came about、uh, mostly from having gone to estate sales over the years. We would find pieces of people's past that seemed like no one else cared.、Um, one piece in particular that really caught me was this diary of a World War II veteran. And the family had this box of photos, and his diary was in there. And I was like, oh, this looks very personal. You might want to keep this. And they just didn't care. So I was like, okay, great. And so I ended up leafing through the diary, and I found out so many things about this person. And then I found photos and other tokens of his entire life that basically told me the story. It was his life story, and it was really beautiful. And I wanted to come up with a way to present that to the public. Have a shop that sort of has these things that people don't really put out there to their family. Sometimes they're dark secrets, sometimes they're just, you know, insignificant traits that they have. And also sometimes they're kind of like sexual quirks that they might have and they have unusual devices hidden under their bed.、Mm -hmm. um, those are also funny things that we find at estate sales. But anyway, the,、uh, the never told part of it is sometimes people. Take a lot of love and things that they never had the chance to say to people to the grave with them. And it's, it's really sad to me. Someone maybe falls in love with someone and they never had the chance to tell them that. And then they die. And so when we go through their possessions, we sometimes find pieces of that. It's almost like a clue to something that was never told. And so we like to bring that back to the shop and show everyone, like, hey, look at all these reminders of life. It's really beautiful to me.、Uh, the casket part of it, we really wanted to make death palatable for people.、Uh, a lot of people are afraid of death, a lot of people are offended by death. And that always surprised me. I grew up immersed in death myself. I had a lot of deaths in the family as a child. And so it was just second nature for me. And then coming to Seattle, I saw that we live in a time where people are cremated, which is wonderful. I believe in cremation. But occasionally, you want to have a wake or a presentation of the death before someone goes, just to let everyone say goodbye. And 
like I said, a lot of people are really uh, intimidated by death, and we wanted to make it something that was just more common. It's going to happen to all of us. So we wanted people to see, like, hey, this is how it works. And so we've had people come in and say they've been diagnosed, and um, we get, you know, what they want. We get a commission, um, you know, the specs, the size, measurement, preference. And uh, it has been a very therapeutic experience for people from what I've noticed. Um, it helps them cope. Um, and it helps their family cope because we talk about it. It's not a taboo. And I was really surprised by that. I was happy. I was hoping for that. But I was also, I'm always surprised when things work out well. So that is the casket part of the business. The curiosities part, like I said, it is really just unusual pieces that we find. Some of my favorite things have been uh, that I've found um, not too often, but sometimes I'll find someone's stuffed pet, which uh, is also controversial because people see like a dead dog and they're like whoa that's terrible and what it is basically is someone loved their dog so much they just had this proclivity they're like i would like to stuff this dog and you know keep him on my shelf so i could admire him always it's like an art piece for them bringing that forth to the public has been really entertaining for me too because it's, you know seeing their faces are like that's a dog oh. uh, it's it's really good and um, also the victorian era a lot of people actually taxidermed their their dogs back then. So it was a common practice. And so bringing things like that back, you know, just showing the public like, hey, look, look at this. In the 1800s, this person stuffed their dog. And so it's kind of like a history lesson, too. I think what I find really interesting when, when you were talking about that is the whole notion of curation and finding these objects. Uh, when I lived in Philadelphia, I lived across a we used to be a, a modern furniture store, but a couple days a week, some guy in an old beat up 1950s truck would come in, park in front, and have all these objects that he had in the bed of his truck. And he was an old guy with a great big beard, overalls. And what he would do basically is, is spend the week driving through the countryside in Pennsylvania, Connecticut, New York, looking for, I guess, estate sales and finding these objects and then bringing them back to the shop for for somebody to look at. So I'm I'm really curious about the curation aspect of what you do. Where do you go to to find objects? How do you select them? What what are the criteria in order to pick an object that you think is yes, this is an object that belongs and never told? Just tell me a little bit about well, how do you find them and how do you keep that that adventurous spirit going to find all this stuff? Oh, yeah, uh, it's actually really enjoyable. Uh, I love traveling. And uh, I love visiting antique malls, flea markets, estate sales. So um, I drive a really big truck. It's a really old, junky truck. I love it. So I'm always ready to pick something up. And uh, primarily I go to estate sales. And um, it's hard to find just the right one, uh, especially on the West Coast. We're a little newer out here, so we don't find as many old pieces. So, um, But I do uh, comb through listings and um, you know sign up to attend these. And like I was saying earlier, I really love going to someone's personal estate sale because you get the story of their life. You look at from when they were young and then, you know, when they got married, their children, their children growing up and then their old age. And it's often really beautiful. Sometimes I find myself like up and like kind of hiding in the attic away from all the other people at the estate sale and just like taking it all in. It's, it's so heavy. Um, sometimes I cry when I'm like picking things out. I'm like, this is so sweet. Uh, it's it's really enjoyable. But as far as like the curation goes, there's a particular aesthetic that I tend to side with the uh, the darker side of objects um, because they're heavier to me. They tell more of um, a story that I'm interested in. 
you know, something like um, a doctor's estate sale uh, who would have human specimens for study uh, mid-century until, I think up until like the 1970s, doctors would use actual human bone for study. They use obviously models and computer programs now. But So I would seek out human skull, skeleton, um, you know, unusual specimens in jars, um, eyeball in a jar kind of thing. And uh, it always fascinated me because it's just like this was someone's body once. And it's a really strong feeling you get when you hold someone else's head. Mm-hmm. That was once their head. It's like a skull in your hands. So it's it's a really interesting, heavy feeling that you get. But I also look for just beautiful pieces of artwork that speak out. You know, I've traveled a lot through Europe, uh, especially in the past year. So I went to, you know, the Louvre in Paris and all kinds of museums. And, uh, every, you know, certain things just catch my eye. And I just look for traces of that in people's modern uh, collections, modern being like 1880s to present. And uh, it's not necessarily from any particular era. It's just something that um, that holds like a really valuable artistic weight to me. You can tell when something is just like really done well, made mm-hmm. well. Um, it's not some like Chinese knockoff kind of thing. It's something that was made to last. I also look for pieces that I can tell were well loved. Recently, I found a box of hair. And it wasn't like beautiful, like presented hair. It wasn't like morning woven hair, which I also really appreciate. It was just someone's hair and ribbons. There was a note in the in the box that just said, Angela's hair, 1913. Mm-hmm. And it was just really special to me because Angela's out there somewhere or, you know, probably not now. But mm-hmm. And it was just really personal. It's like someone forgot that in their closet. And me finding it, I felt like I was unearthing something that was just going to get tossed. And so it was extra special to me. Things like that, I really love finding, um, even though they're not of much value. I think what I what I find fascinating in, in your discussion is when when people think of a curator and you have your own shop where you're presenting this, people wonder whether sometimes you have to select objects that would have appeal to your the people who come to the shop. But a lot of what you're describing is ultimately your own aesthetic and your own personal appeal seems to be the primary motivation for the objects you select whether or not that translates to the people who are coming to the shop, or maybe you think about both aspects, what the people are looking for versus what, what you respond to emotionally. Is it a mix of the two, or is it mostly driven by, by your feel? Uh, it is. Um, I, I sound selfish, but it's mm-hmm. all me. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't really think of what people... Um, I like to show people things, obviously, but I don't. I really don't mind if they like it or not like it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's more something that I see needs to have a story told, to someone else. I, uh, this needs to be seen kind of uh, feeling. As far as the aesthetic goes, I've been an artist my whole life. You know, like I said, art gallery background and I'm a painter. Um, so when I built up the space, you know, you've seen it. It has like the very um, like strong look. It has a black and white zigzag floor and, um, you know, the color palette. And um, it's, you know, presented in such a way. And then everything that's in there has its own story. When you look at it, you just see a place with like, oh, this is a place with interesting stuff. It looks like death, taxidermy, but it's a lot more than that. You just see maybe a stuffed bear head, but what I see is the person I got that from uh, was a, like a retired psychiatrist who liked to go hunting on the weekends. And, you know, you just see, I can see him like finding this bear and I can see him enjoying it in his study and I can see his whole life like passing beneath this bear head. Um, it's not just something cool. It's, it's something beautiful. And what are some of, you mentioned some of the objects or curiosities um, that you've found, but what are the ones that have either impressed you or, or have had the strongest emotional impact in, in the history of your 
adventures and curation finding this stuff? What comes top to mind? Just something that had tremendous impact, devastating or otherwise. Yeah, there's been actually a lot of pieces. I was really surprised. Um, one of my favorite estate sales was, uh, if you're familiar with Bastyr University, the founder of Bastyr University had an estate sale, and he had the most beautiful pieces of homeopathy, like basically the start of that whole movement. He had some devices that were very interesting, and they, they caused a lot of conversation. Um, the, the most interesting one, um, not that I know what, like, what it was used for or whom, uh, perhaps never, perhaps just for display, but uh, was a 1907 glass penis pump. And uh, which I didn't even know that people used them back then. But of course, I guess that makes sense. Um, so when I brought that out, it was kind of an historic like medical device. And he had a few other devices like that. And I was really happy because um, a guy who is from Vancouver, B.C. is starting a sex museum and he came through and bought all those pieces mm. so they can actually be enjoyed by the public and they can learn about the history of sexual devices um, so that was really happy for me. It was a really happy experience. Um, as far as like other heavy pieces go, it's it's not hard, but um, it's a little like losing a friend uh, when someone comes in and acquires something that you've had for a long time. I don't know. It would have to be like the very personal collections of people. Uh, there was a really lovely morning outfit. Um, it was a blouse and a skirt. Um, I get these from time to time. I always look for them because I just personally like them, too. So it was this morning outfit that I just found at an estate sale. And uh, a morning outfit is basically like, you know, a black blouse. It's Victorian era or Edwardian era looking. Very fitted. Inner, inner corset is built in. And it's just very tight. And uh, the fabric's usually wool. Um, and it's usually fairly simple. Um, the lines are very clean. But it'll have some slight embellishments. So anyway, it was lovely. I like to try stuff on so we can take photos of it. And um, this thing was so, so small, so tight. It was hard to like be comfortable in it. Mm. But as soon as I put it on, I just felt um, this wash of sadness. And it was almost like I couldn't breathe. It was also because the outfit was really tight. But then I started feeling the way that someone who had just lost their husband would feel. And I was really surprised at that, uh, at the empathy that just came with the outfit. It was, it was beautiful, stylish. It also just had such a heavy presence. So I almost was able to see what that person was feeling when they wore it. And uh, it was a really strong feeling. I haven't felt like a sadness like that. It was a very unique sadness. And uh, I was really happy to take it off. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, so selling that to someone, I'm always uh, at, a, at odds, like, should I tell them if they put it on, they might get sad? Or should I just let, that, let them decide that? So I kind of play it case by case. and uh, But when I sold it, I was really happy um, that the girl was very interested. I ended up telling her about the, the story. People uh, will follow up with me sometimes and send me an email and a photo and be like, you know, I had this experience and this happened. And it's really beautiful. Um, so that was one of my favorite pieces and experiences, too, that comes to mind. Some of the, the objects you describe on, on your website, you describe them as haunted. And I'm curious in whether you believe haunted means something supernatural and or just what you described, which is the the history, the cultural weight, the personal narrative that we attach and amplify to objects that are around us as part of what is considered haunting. What does haunted mean for you? Well, for me, haunted really does mean that it has a lot of personality to it. Someone really put a lot of themselves into this. Um, something like a, a clock that was stopped at the time of death for someone is to me a haunted object because someone put weight. They, they 
made that a part of their life when they did that. But I believe in the possibility of anything. Um, I don't rule anything out, but I'm also very skeptical. And so I need, I need proof in many ways. So recently, we actually had a skull, uh, and it was a skull from archaeological students um, from the 1960s era. So I saw an ad just for a human skull for sale, and it was this older gentleman, and he had been a student in the 1960s. Um, they had traveled down to Central America uh, to dig up some remains at an Aztec site. I guess this was an era where you could just take things back with you. <laughs> so he took back this human skull, and um, and he was retiring, so he was you know getting rid of some stuff in his collection. And the skull, I was really interested in it, so I got it from him, and I brought it to the shop, and I put it on the shelf behind me when I sat at the counter, and I was researching Aztec culture quite a lot at the time because I wanted to know more. Um, you know, just in general, because whenever I find a piece, it just gives me this opportunity to be interested in something I normally wouldn't consider, or it just doesn't come to your mind. Um, so I was really happy. And so I was researching the whole culture. And while I was doing that, like the next few weeks, people would come in and ask, they'd inquire about the skull behind me. They're like, what's up with that? It just feels like it's looking at me. Um, and I thought, okay, well, maybe it's the way I've presented it because people love to look for, you know, things to be spooked by. It's really mm -hmm. fun. And uh, so I kind of changed the position of it. And no matter what I did, it would stand out. People were like, there's something going on with that skull. And I was like, okay, we'll see. <laughs> so um, I ended up finding some things out about Aztec culture. I was trying to learn the language, but it's really actually hard. Mm -hmm. I discovered I really wanted to like just know some, some things. But um, I put it in the case. I hadn't put a bio or like a price or anything yet. I just kind of put it with a – we have a collection of human skulls that we sell. I – had two people come in in the course of a couple of weeks saying that the skull was very angry, that it did not want to be in the store. And I'm like, okay, at this point, everyone keeps going on about this, this, this skull. Mm -hmm. I ended up putting a bio out. So now people know it's an Aztec skull. And then they were interested, still saying the same thing. Like, That's, that one's different. And I was like, oh, okay, fine. Um, we moved locations to another space. So he, the skull had been in storage for a few months, you know, not going anywhere. So I brought everything back, and I here we go, putting the skull back in the display case, and the same thing happened. But the final straw was this woman who um, had affiliations with some Native American culture shaman demanded that I put a bunch of offerings behind it and said it was angry, the same thing that other people were saying. So I was like, this is it. I got to take this skull out of here, out of the shop, because it's not happy. Uh, but that was more um, one of the more unusual experiences that I had um, where I had multiple people saying the same thing, independent of each other. Mm -hmm. So that's what I always look for um, when I think I might have a haunted object. And uh, like I said, I'm really skeptical. So I'm really excited when I have like multiple verifications from people. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shift a little bit and, and talk about your personal approach and aesthetic sometimes this show is about places but what yeah. i've been discovering as i've started this and talking to people about places that the the cultural social fabric of a place really is interwoven with the people who inhabit it yeah. so i'm going to ask you some questions it might be a little psycho psychoanalysis and you can say eric don't go there and that's fine <laughs> I, I want to explore a bit of your personal account of the aesthetic and the emotional appeal that the haunted the strange the so-called gothic in its purest and original sense of the word had on you what is it about this lifestyle if you can call it a lifestyle lifestyle often seems to connote like you chose this aesthetic to wear uh, what what is it about this lifestyle that resonates with you is it odd to call it a lifestyle is it just a way of being that flows naturally out of you 
Well, if you look at the um, the inside of the store and how it's set up, um, it's set up in such a way, um, it's basically the, how the inside of my mind might look. Um, I've always loved presenting things beautifully to people, uh, being an artist just by nature. But I also like to present things to um, maybe help people think differently. If you go to Ikea and see a couch that's easy to put together, that's great. Um, the couch might last you a couple of years. And then it'll end up on a sidewalk somewhere as garbage. And that makes me really sad. One part of antiques is that this thing has lasted 100 years. And it's going to last a lot longer because it's well taken care of, well made. But I also like people to to look at the couch and be like, someone made this with their hand. I'm sitting in this couch. It gives me maybe a thought to history or lets me relax a little bit more versus something made in China that I feel is like even that that's like cursed. You know, it's made mm -hmm. by unhappy people. Mm -hmm. um, whereas antiques are really well loved. They're very human. So many people have touched them. And um, if you're sitting in a study, would you want to look at a portrait that really inspires you? Or would you like to look at a print you bought at Target? So I feel like these pieces really bring out the best in people, if they want that to be the case. And that is how I want things to be. So mm -hmm. I just like to present that option to people. Yeah. And, and the appeal of the Victorian era, Edwardian era, a, a certain visual look and aesthetic, it, it just flows naturally out of you. Can you talk a little bit about what is it about this kind of aesthetic that really appeals to you personally? Did you know at an early age that, that this has expressed who you are? Or is my whole description of it odd? It's not something that sits out there among many choices that you said, I'm going to pick this aesthetic and this lifestyle. Well, I really love the um, the Victorian era, turn of the century, because it's before things were mass produced. It's um, It's back when they were made by hand uh, more often than not. Um, so you you get a lot more resonance from them, in my opinion. Um, machine age is wonderful, too. Mass production really helped a lot of things along in, um, in our society, but I really love the era before that where skill was really put to use ev in everything. Paintings were actually sought after by everyone as opposed to something simple and, and quick like a print. It just it really like brings out the best in people, I feel like, um, or at least it brings out the best in me. Mm -hmm. um, it is really inspiring. And um, yeah, it's it's just made from a different place. As far as the aesthetic goes, though, um, you know, I've always been one for kind of the dramatic mm -hmm. <laughs> as far as environments go. And uh, I really appreciate it. I really somehow have this ability of finding things that you might just overlook and then bringing it out and uh, making it beautiful again. So um Hopefully that answers your question. Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> I haven't thought about it. The The nature of craftsmanship, of an artifact in the purest sense of the word before the industrial era came in, yeah. the actual act of creating these objects was slower, was more deliberate. I can even imagine people having the mental space to enjoy time, think about the small details of what they're doing, even think about their lives as they're producing these objects. Whereas now in mass industrialization, it's all about efficiency, productivity, clock watching, and so on. So when you're thinking about objects that are produced nowadays, it's very difficult to see a human narrative or a human story in 90 to 95% of what's out there nowadays. Yeah. So I never really quite thought about the notion of antiques and, and haunted objects in the sense that they're haunted in that a narrative of an individual's craftsmanship or appreciation of it is imbued in the object in ways that are very difficult to find now. It's just, 
I never thought of it in yeah, haunting in exactly. that way. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. It's um, it, basically putting things together like that, making a, an old couch. Uh, it was like a ritual. Um, if you look, if you go to Africa and you see a wooden mask and someone tells you it was made for rituals and they danced with it, it holds a lot of weight. Um, when you look at a Victorian era couch, to me, that ritual has the same weight. Someone went through all of these steps and they put just as much of their energy into it as someone would for um, a magic, magic item. And that's why it's really special to me. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the objects in, in your shop are are dead things, mm-hmm. you know, uh, stuffed animals, skulls, as you mentioned, pieces of bone fragments and, and so on. What are your views on death? Do you have a philosophy of death that you can express? Well, I could go on all day about it, but I'll try uh-huh. to condense. <laughs> um, as far as that goes, um, I obviously none of us know what happens when we die. Um, we have a lot of interesting theories and a lot of things that seem plausible. But I love the fact that we're all on the same level. We're all going to die. We're all equal in death. And I feel like that's a beautiful thing for humans. Um, it's the great equalizer. And reminders of that, as far as animal um, remains, taxidermy bones, um, I grew up in Wisconsin. So it was second nature. It was a byproduct. And I saw it more as recycling. And I also saw it as like um, putting together a puzzle or drawing in a coloring book. For As a child, I would, um, you know, find an animal and kind of like clean the bones. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's just like a very relaxing experience for me. And presenting it in a lovely way. Um, remains are just like nature's artwork. And I just always thought that they were really beautiful. So at some point, something was alive with this skull or this pelt. And uh, so it has a lot of value to me. And I like presenting it in such a way. And I can see how it would be off-putting to people. I um, It would be off-putting to me if I didn't really know, like, just walked into a shop and saw all of these faces staring at me. And mm-hmm. um, So I always try to make it comfortable for people and explain, like, well, here's... Here's this and this is why. Um, I actually have the same feeling when I go into, I don't know, like a McDonald's and I see chicken nuggets. It's like, well, those are dead birds. And then you see like the face of it. It's just very confrontational. Mm-hmm. And um, I just like showing people the ins and outs of our existence. Um, and when you grow up in Wisconsin, you see that. You see like where we get our food, where we get our crops. But a lot of people like me now, you know, I could just forget easily where all that food comes from and what life is like. And but as far as death itself, uh, I was um, when I was a child, I had a lot of deaths in my family. And um, the way it was dealt with was very um, not healthy. People would suppress a lot. Hmm. And um, as a child, I thought that was a really bad idea. I wanted to talk about it. And people were like, oh, you know, God will take care of it. And that was the end. And I thought, well, that's that's not enough information. I need mm-hmm. to talk about this more. Like, what happens? And, like, um, couldn't we have, like, talked to them beforehand? Why is this a secret? They make it almost like a perverse experience. Um, and so throughout the years, I, um, you know, found like-minded people, and we would discuss mortality. And it ended up being a really great thing because there's a lot of history. All these cultures have different practices for death. And so you find out, like, oh, yeah, this culture actually celebrates a funeral. This one dances with the casket at the funeral. It's beautiful. So all of these um, artistic forms come out of death. Um, but meanwhile, in middle America, everyone's just like, oh, it's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I wanted to do is just show people from around the world, death can be celebrated, beautiful. It's going to happen to you. Let's be comfortable with it. Yeah, and I think... Um 
it's gaining momentum. I'm thinking of a particular author and YouTube person named Caitlin. I think her last mm-hmm. name is pronounced Dowdy. Yeah. She's an ex, um, I think, funeral director, undertaker, yeah, and her. so on. Yeah. yeah. And she really talks about not just the mechanics of death, but the business surrounding taking care of death and how a lot of it is unnecessary. So she yes. really opens up conversations that need to be opened up. Yeah. The, yeah. Um, the funeral industry for decades <clears throat> has been, in my opinion, very... Um, very vulture-like. They take a lot of money and they shouldn't be um, siphoning so much out of people, especially needy families who are very religious and need to have this practice. And I just feel like they take advantage of people. I've been very upset with the funeral industry for a very long time. And um, another reason why we wanted to offer people affordable caskets and affordable urns, um, it's it's something that I feel like we are transitioning into a, a more enlightened time. Mm. The philosopher in me wants to go back to talking about death for a second because yes. there's a certain paradox that that I've encountered and, and I, I want to bring it up. You've been talking about, you know, part of the motivation of showing these objects and talking about this is to demystify death, to to open it up, have those conversations, make sure people are eyes wide open about the facts and not hiding it. Yeah. So that sounds like a very pragmatic, almost somewhat political, let's all have realism around death. But at the same time, your shop and your aesthetic adds a certain veneer of, and tell me if this is wrong, sort of a romanticism or an emotional layer around death, which is more appreciative. It's less pragmatic. There's a there's an aesthetic um, wrapper yeah. around it. So I'm wondering, what's that about? At the same time, it's finality, but at the same time, there's a certain... I don't want to call it reverence, but it's the only word that comes out. Uh, do you know what I'm getting at? Yeah, I do. Um, that is actually the um, the beautiful side of the the shop, in my opinion, because um, I really appreciate the fact that death reminds us of life. People who know me always tell me how like, calm I am all of the time, and I'm a very happy person because I'm aware that I'm going to die. And so I really appreciate being alive a lot. Like every day is just really special to me. So seeing like something that is death-based makes me happy because I'm like, I'm still alive. This is a reminder of me being alive today. I mean, honestly, like I wake up every day and I just appreciate the hell out of like, oh my God, I'm awake, my cat, mm-hmm. everything. Yeah. Um, it, it is really good. Um, it's a very happy place. And it is romantic too. I romanticize um, the world because the world is a beautiful place if we allow ourselves to see that. Granted, you know, we're going to be in a rush sometimes and something's going to happen where you might not get to notice something. But for the most part, all you have to do is slow down even just slightly. And you'll see how like there's love everywhere. Everyone is really wanting to be a decent human being um, if we let them. And um, it's kind of like a chain reaction. If we're like that, if we appreciate our lives, it, it basically flows into everyone around us. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of the themes um, behind this particular podcast in sight. Often the the language in capitalism is is mindfulness, but I think what's important about it is to to slow down and really take in the sensory experience around you at its fullest yeah, exactly. in order to understand it and in a way to understand your engagement with the world as well. Yeah. And the way I describe it sometimes is we go through life clenched, almost mm-hmm. like our mind is, a, is in the fist. And when we can relax and look at details and appreciate great objects and understand their story, we're just unclenching ourselves and just allowing that 
those experiences to flow through us and, and understand ourselves better. But it's very difficult. It in is. Our it takes some world. Yeah, it definitely does. Um, if you've ever met somebody who's had a near death experience, they seem a bit more enlightened. Mm. Um, that is uh, what I would actually like to people to experience without having a near death experience. It's just to be a little more enlightened, and that is why the shop is really important to me. It's um, I really don't care about making money. I don't care about selling or sales or advertisements or ten percent off all natural history items. I don't care about any of that. I just want to bring love, beauty, and um, education to people and um, to give them pause. You know, they, they see something and maybe it sparks something in them and they give it to someone they love or they keep it in their room and it improves their life. That's basically what all I want to do. <laughs> but, you know, there are um, typical descriptions and narratives out there that tend to emerge around the objects and the lifestyle associated with your shop and they include words such as creepy, mm -hmm. odd, macabre. Um, and these are words that tend to connote some kind of deviance. You don't consider what you do in your passions as deviant in some way? Or is there room for, yes, there is some deviance, but it's okay. Yeah, it's. Um, I understand that people would go there. It's not how I feel at all. Um, but I do understand that it seems like Adam's family, deviant, creepy, spooky. Um, and I'm happy that that makes people go to a place if they think that's um, something that they enjoy. Mm -hmm. Um for me, I, I don't see it as that. Um, it's it's a little more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it does seem to side with that from time to time. Um, what's interesting is when I look at all of those things, they seem very happy and uh, historic and uh, lovely. Those are the words that I always use to describe my things. But, but yeah, we do tend to draw on a lot of people in like the, the gothic community, um, subcultures. It's because those people think differently too. And, you know, they kind of fall into the same... Um, aesthetic, um, because it is something that's kind of on the outskirts of the norm, uh, as you'd say. But we also have a lot of people who are collectors, uh, museum curators. Um, we have a lot of people in the medical industry because they love buying medical curiosities just for their permanent collection, uh, things like that. Um, we get a lot of students, people traveling, just um, all kinds of people. My favorite is when we get children who are really, in, you know, you can see the look in their eye and they're just like, wow, what is this? Mm -hmm. And uh, they'll ask me a question and they're really nervous and then I get to explain it to them. It's a, it's a very cool feeling. It feels a lot like a museum very often. That's wonderful because that might be a formative experience for them, just that I moment so. right there. A lot of responsibility in your hands. Yeah, <laughs> there is one that. boy last weekend, he told me he was going to include me in his novel. He's wow. five years old and mm -hmm. I hope that he does because I'm a little vain in that regard. I want to be in someone's novel. <laughs> So an, an interesting theme you've been talking about, and I wanted to ask you about this, and what are your views about the, the popularization and commercialization of, of the concept of oddities? I think about pop culture and how they've adopted or, or in some points of view, co-opted goth themes. I think of Hot Topic. In some ways, I think of Tim Burton movies, TV reality shows that feature shop like yours. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you when you face this, do you appreciate that this is happening, that the lifestyle is more visible, that the aesthetic is more visible, or is there a certain tension because you feel it's a caricature or an oversimplification? What happens when you butt heads with the high visibility commercialization of the lifestyle? Um, I don't, I'm not really for or against it. Uh, it is what it is. And uh, it does help people like to identify and, um, you know, kind of like categorize something. So I've, it is good because it makes people feel a little safer coming into the shop. They're like, okay, there's a TV show. I'm not going to be abducted and used as something for sale in the store later. Mm -hmm. So it give, makes people feel a bit safer and they can relate to it. I, uh, I actually didn't, haven't seen any of those shows. Um, mm -hmm. I've seen clips of them. And uh, I, I really appreciate it um, because uh, there's a lot of education that comes out of that. There's a lot of good that comes out of it. 
So anything that like brings people knowledge and experience that they normally wouldn't have is, is a good thing to me. I hope right. that answers the question. Yeah, I think I think um, a lot of people might might feel, and this is true about any subculture that that becomes popularized. There are some folks that kick back at that and, and think, shake their fist at that popularization and say it it's not authentic. It doesn't capture oh, the true yeah. spirit. But it seems like. You're not too worried about that. No, it's, you know. I think insecure people do that kind of mm-hmm. thing. <laughs> yeah. I don't care um, either way. I'm just, um, I'm happy to see things flourishing. Um, there's no like ownership. There's, it's not like some um, elitist uh, group or something like that. It's, uh, it's just a like a, a thing that is something that's resonating with a lot of people right now because they're looking for something different. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's a good thing overall. And I think so. And there's a quote from Yelp about your. Oh. Your store, I want to oh, read no. it. I never go on Yelp. <laughs> oh, well, I'm going to bring Yelp to you. I think it's a good quote. Okay. It's, quote, the place definitely has a goth feel to it, if such a label and affiliation is still accurate these days, end quote. <laughs> so I think it, it captures a little bit of what we've been talking yeah. about. And there's that consciousness out there about popularization of goth hot topic versus yeah. what you've been describing, which is a much more personal, curated approach to thinking about Victorian, Edwardian era, even before that historical meaning associated with objects. Something that struck me when I visited uh, Never Told, it really is more than a shop or an exhibit space. It seems to be also a a gathering place for folks that share similar views and approaches. Does it serve as that kind of space for kindred spirits? I love it. Um, That's actually my favorite aspect of the shop is that um, people will come in and you know how usually when you go into a store, they're like, hi doing have a good day and uh, the person will just like sell you something like a tote bag the end um but when people come in um seattle is a funny place because i think the weather makes us a little antisocial sometimes because we're all kind of bummed or something um and so i can see that people like want to talk but they're not sure because uh, retail is not a thing that happens anymore so mm-hmm. it's um it's a little awkward for some to like warm up to some crazy lady behind a counter with like weird fur on or something. And uh, so I love to open up conversations with just like a really awkward joke or like a bad dad joke or something. And uh, and then people will get to talking and then we end up talking for an hour or two. Um, and then we end up becoming friends and then they'll come back and then I'll be talking to another person. They'll come in and then those two people will meet. Mm-hmm. And um, what happens is I refer them to go to places, go to this club, you would like this band. And then it becomes like this group of people and it just grows and grows. And it's really awesome because I feel like, you know, I've like um, gotten couples together and, uh, you know, and I've like introduced lots of people throughout the years and uh, it makes me really happy. It's definitely a community, which is, like I said, is the most important thing to me because we're losing that sense of community with um, internet. And it's not a good or a bad thing. It's Mm -hmm. just, it is what it is. I'm not complaining about um, the lack of community, but I want, I do want to retain community, especially in Capitol Hill, um, where you know the, the weird people needed to still congregate, uh, there needs to be some kind of place where um, people who uh, who are just unusual, you know, they have different kinds of tastes. They can't necessarily go on to like Tinder's and find somebody that they like. These are people who don't do that kind of thing. They need to like meet people in person and just mm-hmm. talk about unusual stuff, and um, you know, go to like some kind of um, spooky '80s goth club afterward or something. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's really good. Um, but I meet all kinds of different people from around the world who I still keep in contact. Um, I'm really lucky to have so many 
awesome friends out there uh, that I've met, like people from Italy, people from around the U.S., children, um, elderly people, um, witches, tarot readers, Ouija board makers, artists, um, engineers, all kinds. Um, and um, we all have such unusual things in common, and uh, it's really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Maybe unbeknownst to you or maybe with intent, what you've created is a what used to be called the salons in, in Europe of the 19th century where there's gathering places that share a certain philosophical view of life where people congregate to to have coffee to eat to socialize i don't know if that was your original intent what i didn't even space, think but, about it yeah. um it, but it ended up happening yeah um one of my uh traits for better or worse is that i never um overthink anything and uh i just do it i just go into it and then the result I don't know why, but the result always ends up being awesome. Like, lucky me, knock on wood. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's always something that I don't expect that comes out of everything I do. And uh, this the salon effect is, like, so good. I was so happy. But I wasn't expecting that at all. Mm-hmm. And you have events, don't you? You have readings and... Do you continue doing those? What what do those events look like occasionally at Never Told? Yeah, we do have events. Um, we have... Um, Parties, like, um, you know, holiday parties. Our last event we had, I guess, was our Halloween party, which was really fun. We had a costume contest and um, prizes. And we always, like, cater everything, you know, as best as we can. And I feel like we do a great job. But we bring a lot of people in with those to the point where we're always, like, max capacity flowing out the door, which makes me think that Seattle might need some more outlets for people who really want to be weird. Mm-hmm. It's not just a party where you, you know, drink and get drunk and, like, dance um it is people dressing up it gives them a reason to wear that outfit that they would normally feel insecure about because you can't wear this outfit walking mm-hmm. to bar to bar but you can go to this grand like get together at never's hold and wear like whatever you want you can be whoever you want to be you can wear a mask you can wear prosthetic arms you can do anything and uh, it's well received it's loved and it's respected i want to shift gears a little bit and and talk about your travels and objects you found in your travel. So other than Seattle, what are some other cities or places you have visited or want to visit that have provided you with inspiration or really have been impactful in your life while doing this? Well, this year has been an amazing year for travel. Um, I took a tour of Europe in October. I went to London, Paris, and Berlin, which all three cities are so different. I loved judging each city by like their historic, like their flea markets, mm-hmm. which blew my mind because, you know, when we go to flea markets here, it's great. But you go to a flea market there and there are pieces that are several hundred years old sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, and so it was a really overwhelming. I could have stayed there for like a year just looking at a flea market. Um, I also, when I was in London, got some war memorabilia, uh, which was pretty controversial. Um, but I decided to go forward with it anyway because it just had so much weight. Um, Berlin had an unusual effect on me, which I wasn't expecting, though, um, in that... It had a heaviness to the whole city that kind of just like it resonates and you can Mm -hmm. feel it. Um, It was really overwhelming to the point where I would just start feeling really emotional in certain areas of the city. And then you would research it and find out that someone had been shot there. Um, For whatever reason, just like the energy there is really like easy to absorb um, it was a really good experience for me it was like living um, living inside of a museum for the week that I was there yeah, it was a really important experience for me um, but yes and then as far as the pieces go you know I would look for things that kind of like I felt along with that feeling because I wanted to bring that back and show people how Berlin felt so it's it's kind of like you have to be a little creative because you can't just bring a piece of the Berlin wall 
um, you have to bring something that is a little more artistic. And like, so someone that gets a piece of the wall, it's so literal, they're going to sit there and think about a wall and that sucked. But if you get someone's locket that has a picture and maybe the glass is a little cracked and it was found in rubble by one of the rubble women after World War II and it went through all these hands and the original owner died and the woman cried for years and held on to it. And then it ends up in like this small corner shop and then I find it and I give it to someone and I was like, this is how Berlin feels. Um, so that's what I wanted to do. I think you mentioned Berlin. Berlin has had a significant impact in my psychological life, partly because my mom is German, but I've been there as well. And I don't know what it is about the city. The fact that it's located sort of at the cradle of east and west, historically it has gone through different waves over time. I think of the 20s and 30s and how uh, libertine it was, how open it was, how tremendous amount of energy, um, many different ethnic groups coursing through Berlin Nazism, of course, hitting, quashing everything down, tremendous sadness as a result, the division of the city by the wall with communist and capitalist presence there. So you have the gaudiness of capitalism and industrialization on one side and the, if you will, severity of communism on the other. And all of the layers of, of effervescent culture, Weimar culture, you know, abstract expressionism, German expressionism, communism, the Cold War, it's just accumulating over time and that just creates so much not just objects but just emotional layers in that mm -hmm. city um, I don't know if it's because I have a German background there's a, a great film which has had influence of me which is a, a film called Wings of Desire by Wim Wenders that's one of my favorite movies too yeah and the his approach to that is focusing on the inner monologues of people who live in the city, but by focusing on the inner monologues, he's just unearthing layers and layers of that historical weight that the city has gone through. It, it, yeah. it really is, and I probably have mentioned this in this podcast three times already, so I forgive me, everybody, a great movie for people to, to take a look at. Yeah, Berlin, in particular, beautiful. is just a, a devastatingly beautiful city. Yeah, yeah. and um, there are, you know, most people won't be able to travel to Berlin, and so I want to bring that back to them and explain it to them. Like you would feel watching Wings of Desire, um, I want to bring actual pieces back where they can hold in their hand and hold a piece of that feeling and hopefully understand um, what it's like to be there and the history. And um, it just tells such a strong story. It's such a strong place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think possibly another place is... Uh... Rome. I don't know if you I've if you had the opportunity. I've always wanted to. That's the, my next stop. Yeah, there's a. I actually wrote it down. There's a crypt built by and we visited by Capuchin friars. And what they did is an ornate and meticulous and obsessive collection of human bones, and they've organized it almost in a baroque way, so that there are nine or ten rooms. There's the pelvis room. There's the, uh, you know, the femur room, and they create these ornate patterns, just as you go into a church and see these flying buttresses and stained glass. It's the same kind of effect, but it's all made out of human bone. And it's, it's the Marquis de Sade actually said, quote, I have never seen something more striking. And the fact that he said that is, mm -hmm. is indicative. Yeah. So, yeah, travel <sighs> to find these places so important. It's really yeah. important. And yeah. you're not a tourist. You're more of an historian. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a really good experience. I um, I know it's easy for me to say that everyone should travel because not everyone has that opportunity. That's why um, I love films, books, you know, objects, museums. Those are really important because we can bring that to people when they can't go. Because I think it's important everyone experiences the world and gets that perspective. Before we wrap up, could you could you tell us where the shop is located in Seattle and how people can discover you online? A bit of the 
you know, if they want to learn more about Never Told Casket Company? Oh, yeah. Um, so we are at 509 13th Avenue. Uh, we're between the International District and Capitol Hill in a neighborhood called Squire Park. Uh, we are off of 12th, so we're at 13th and Jefferson. And it's in a really lovely building uh, built in 1907. The building's an historic building, so I'm really happy that it won't get torn down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we uh, we are there. And uh, our website address is easy. It's nevertoldcasket.com. Um, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram and all that stuff, too. Just look us up by the company name. So thank you so much for joining. This was great. We not only talked about, about the place and, and how you curate objects and how the objects have meaning to you, but got a little deeper into the, the philosophy of the aesthetic and the lifestyle, which I always appreciate yeah. because I think the the overlapping of how people and places interact is, is crucial in order to understand it the world. Is. Yeah, it really is. So thank you so much for being a part of today's episode. Yeah, thanks for having me. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share, like, or leave reviews about this podcast since all this activity helps us get noticed and grow. I would also love it if you visited thismustbetheplace.io where our podcasts, videos, and written content live. On that site is a companion article to this podcast where you will find additional details about Never Told Casket Company along with relevant links. And of course, you can always subscribe and receive the latest greatest episode on your favorite app and device. So fire up your favorite podcatcher or find us at the usual suspects, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, etc. Until the next time, this must be the place.